Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia, Episode 3. In this episode, we introduce the Rus and their interaction with Estonians in ancient times, and we go on to introduce ancient Estonian religion and culture, or at least what we know of it. The Kievan Rus were established in the year 862, according to the Slavic chronicle Tales of the Old Time, by three Viking brothers, Rurik, Sinuous, and Truver. The story of the Kievan Rus was started, however, with the capture of Kiev by a friend of Rurik named Oleg, and unites many of the East Slavonic tribes. In the 9th and 10th centuries, relations between Estonia and the Kievan Rus were good. In the, in the East Slavonic Chronicles, the Estonians were called the Chudes, and it is document, and, and it documents the fact that Estonians played an important role in helping Oleg conquer Kiev. Estonians also took part in campaigns to Byzantium and helped garrison fortresses on the Slavs' southern border to help protect against nomadic tribes. In the late 10th century, relations between the Kievan Rus and the Estonians had deteriorated. The East Slavonic Chronicles reports that Yaroslav the Wise conducted a victorious campaign in Estonia in the year 1030, where he built a, a fortress in Tartu and called it Yuriev, after his Christian name, Yuri. This was not, however, the founding of Tartu. Archaeological digs give evidence of earlier forts dating back centuries prior. In the year 1054, another campaign in Estonia did not go as well. The leader of the campaign named Ostromir from Novgorod was killed. A short time after the fortress of Kieva in Haryu district was taken in an attack by, led by Prince Izyaslav, and in the year 1060, Izyaslav imposed taxes on the local inhabitants. However, the Estonians drove out the tax collectors and retook Tartu in the following spring, pressed their advantage, and drove the Slavs back as far as Peskov. There, a fierce battle occurred, and the East Slavonic Chronicle states a thousand Slavs were killed in countless Sosols, which was another name given to Estonians in the Chronicle. This period from 1030 to 1070 was an important time in Estonian history. It showed that the Estonians had become capable of standing in an organized fashion against a great power. Over the next 50 years, there is no evidence or mention of Eastern Slavs campaigning in Estonia. Estonia and their last period of freedom, the late ancient times. This is the part that we get to talk about how great things are going in Estonia before their subjugation by the Catholic Church. We are talking about the early part of the second millennium to the early 13th century. During this period, the population of Estonia grew to 150,000, and most of the villages in northern Estonia already existed. In this time frame, Estonia was the northernmost people subsisting by tilling the land. There were different plows for different regions and soil conditions. Barley was grown in earlier times, but during this period, winter rye became a common crop in the rotation in the 11th century. In the earlier time, a second crop rotation was used. 
Now a three crop rotation was used. This means that in one field, a crop would grow in the winter, in a second field, a crop would grow in the summer, and a third field was allowed to lay fallow, allowing the soil to recover. Estonians also bred a wide variety of your standard farm animals, including cattle, sheep, pigs, horses, goats, and chickens. Evidence shows from excavations in forts and villages that a wide game made up only that wild game made up only 10% of the bones found. During this period, iron smelting became even more important. Local smiths used iron smelted from bog ore, which was sourced locally, as was mentioned earlier in the podcast. Everyday tools such as knives, axes, sickles, and scythes were the most common tools made. The work of armorers were especially highly skilled, making jeweled hilts of swords and spearheads decorated with silver. During the era of iron smelting, centers were developed in Viruma and Sodorma. Some highly specialized craftsmen made bronze ornaments like long-linked chains, jewel pins, brooches, necklaces, rings, and bracelets worn around both arms. Trade flourished, with most trade occurring with local Balts and Finnic people, with trade occurring as far away as Novgorod and Peskov, and the island of Soderma having special trading relations with the island of Gotland due to their geographic proximity. If you look at a map, one can see why, as they are fairly close. In the early 13th century, a collection of villages were grouped together and were called a parish. There were about 45 parishes in Estonia. Parishes were named, were formed into regions, in which there were eight. These regions were Viruma, Ravala, Yarva, Haryu, Lanema, Sarema, Ugandi, and Sakala. Henry of Livonia reports that annual joint meetings of elders were held in Raikula. This showed the preliminary development of an Estonian nation. Estonia in the 11th and 12th century was relatively united. Most Estonians were free people. They gathered together to discuss important topics. They worked together to build forts for their mutual protection. And most pasture land were were shared lands while the fields were owned and worked by individual families. As always happens, some Estonians did better than others, and a small noble class was developing. These men became village elders. Some village elders became so influential that the village would be named after the elder. Henry of Livonia referred to the village of Lembitu, named after an influential influential village elder. Military standards in in late ancient times. The biggest change to the defense of ancient Estonia was the development of state-like unions of its neighbors. With these new unions, it allowed Estonia's neighbors to raise large military units that could possibly invade and hold territory. The Kievan Rus' made such a push into Estonia in the mid-11th century. 
During this period, several, several smaller fortresses were abandoned and were replaced with larger and stronger ringed fortresses in Western Estonia and Saarma. An example of a ringed fortress that can be visited even to this day is the fortress of Vargola. The walls of this fortress are 580 meters long and 8 to 10 meters tall. It is reported that 32,000 horse cart loads of limestone were brought in for these massive walls. The limestone needed to be chipped out, transported, and precisely fit into position. An enormous amount of manpower was needed to perform this task. The gates to a fort are normally the weak point of an attack. Estonians typically had gateways leading to the main gate, with walls funneling the besiegers in a narrow corridor, providing them with less freedom of movement and left them vulnerable to projectiles. There also may have been a series of gates that an attacker would have to overcome before they reached the main gate. The main gate was generally defended by a, a tall tower. The fortress of Varbola was truly an impressive fortress and was never conquered by foreign invaders, although some besieged, besieging armies were bought off and the fortress, fort, the fortress had surrendered. I've had the good fortune of visiting the Varbola fortress on several occasions and will again in the future. It is the conveniently located in northwest Estonia, not too far from my wife's family in Rapla. Estonia used smaller and lightweight javelins, as well as longer and stronger spears, as some of their main weapons. Men also used swords, battle axes, and clubs, but normally from horseback. Bows were not commonly used in Estonia during this era. Defensive armor mostly consisted of shields. Only fairly wealthy men could afford chainmail made of iron links. No evidence has been discovered of Estonians wearing helmets during this period. The district army was made up of both cavalry and infantry. The siege craft during this period of time was limited. The sailors of Sarama in western Estonia were highly skilled, and they used craft similar to those used by the Vikings and were fast and well-built. They could cause trouble and give a good fight to any of the other tribes or groups in the area, including the Vikings. So, for this period of time, we have an, we have an Estonia that is able to defend itself and a power strong enough to go raiding and take the fight to its enemies. As our timeline progresses, it probably makes sense to take a tour of the area surrounding Estonia to get to know its neighbors and explain who everyone is. As there are a lot of different tribes, many Slavic, many Finnic, but we, but we won't be hearing much from them uh, too much in the future as big changes are coming for the entire region with the onset of the Crusades. So let's take a tiny bit of time and check them out. To the south of Estonia are the ancestors of the Latvians, the Latgalians, Salonians, Semigallians, Coronians. We all, uh, we all were all East Slavic people. The area around current day Riga and northern Latvia, all along the coast, were the Karelians and the Livonians, 
which were Finnic-speaking. The phrase kindred spirits is often used by Estonian historians referring to these tribes, which means their culture is much more similar and their language is similar. Their religion and beliefs are more familiar. According to Henry of Livonia, Estonians and Letgalians fought back and forth, with usually the Estonians faring better than the Letgalians, and therefore were bitter rivals. The Lithuanians to the south were a much stronger opponent. Evidence exists that show multiple devastating raids by the Lithuanians into Estonia. The Swedes and Danes were at this point trying to subjugate the Estonians and bring them under the Christian faith. During this time frame, the Estonians were able to band together and make looting raids along the coast of the Baltic Sea. In the year 1170, the Estonians, together with the Karelians, made a raid into Denmark, but were confronted at sea near the island of Uland, and a naval battle broke out for two days. In the year 1187, Estonians, along with other Finnic tribes living along the coast, banded together and attacked Sigtuna in Sweden. Sigtuna was the most important trading center in all of Sweden at this time. The invading army totally devastated Sigtuna and burnt it to the ground. The destruction was so thorough that the city was never rebuilt. The danger to the east was diminishing during the 12th century for the Estonians with the weakening and eventual collapse of the Kievan Rus into smaller parts. Only the feudal Republic of Novgorod organized raids into Estonia, but only in the east. In the years 1111 to 1116, Estonians had to fight off attacks from Prince Mitsislav three separate times. His successor, Prince Vesevolod, also organized three separate campaigns into eastern Estonia. According to the East Slavonic Chronicles, which was mentioned, uh, which also mentioned counter raids by Estonians. In 1177, Estonians of the entire country joined together to make a large campaign against Peskov, which was followed up by a counter-raid. In 1190, a large naval expedition by the seaside Chudes, according to the East Slavonic Chronicle, were discovered and confronted by the Slavs on Lake Pepsi, who were most likely planning on another invasion to the east. Subsequently, the armies of Peskov and Novgorod attacked into southern Estonia and sacked Tartu in the winter of 1191 and 1192, and the fortress of Atupai fell the following summer. These gains were only temporary as the Slavic armies eventually retreated, and thus the southern part of Estonia was kept by the Estonians. The Ancient Estonian Religion There is a, no unifying ancient religion or set of customs that starts with Stone Age people and progresses to modern times, or that stayed unchanged during ancient times. Today, neo-paganism is a technical way of describing the modern-day religion and spirituality. 
The Estonians call it Mausk. Literal translation is native faith. Beliefs and customs of the Stone Age and Iron Age cultures and hunters, gatherers, were surely different from what that of the Iron Age farmer that raised animals and tilled the soil. Unfortunately, there are very few sources that pass down ancient beliefs and thoughts. All we have are vague impressions. The most important, the mo- most information we have to draw from our folk traditions and folklore collected and passed down in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. There are also cult sites which have been examined, but they have failed to yield results. Force is one thing that many of the ancient beliefs share. It is the belief that all people and all living things have this force, something outside of the physical body. There is also force in certain places, in the sky, and in nature. Thunderstorms were certainly divine proof of this force. Words could also contain force. For those that were able to cast spells and curses, they they must have come across command of this force. These individuals could be called wizards or sorcerers. These people understood nature better and could therefore manipulate it better. The wizards would pass down their knowledge from generation to generation on the effect of certain herbs and the knowledge of interpreting sensitivity to natural phenomenon. The more knowledge they would supposedly able to predict the future better. And apparently the Estonian sorcerers were popular in ancient times. According to the East Slavonic Chronicle, the chewed wizards were usually preferred above their own. There seemed to be concentrations of force at some springs, groves, or stones, because a certain specific stone, for example, were worshipped while an equally impressive or even more impressive stone was not worshipped. Animals and humans carried their force in their heads, hearts, blood, nails, hair, fur, and teeth. People from the Stone Age to the end of the ancient times wore necklaces made out of teeth and tusks of the creatures they killed. In ancient Estonia, uh, if an ancient Estonian killed his foe in battle, he would remove his heart and attempt to destroy his opponent's force. When slaves were taken, their hair was commonly chopped off to destroy their will and resistance. By taking some of their force, they became weaker. When young women were married, they had their hair cut off to ensure submission to their man. One could also take a hold of an animal or enemy's force by drinking their blood or eating their organs. We are fortunate that we have Henry of Livonia here again to report to us that in the year 1223, warriors from Sakala captured the Danish bailiff of Yarva region named Hebe. Henry described how the warriors plucked out the heart of Hebe, who was still alive, and roasted it over a fire, dividing it among, amongst themselves and eating it to be strong against the Christians. The soul bore the uniqueness of an individual and was integral in keeping a person alive. 
It is also believed that during sleep, a person's soul could escape the body and move around, and in some cases, end up in another person's body temporarily. But of course, in death, the soul left permanently. There are many differing opinions on where the soul went upon death. Some believe it went to a sacred grove or cemetery. Others believe the soul may move to another living creature's body like a beetle, an ant, or a spider. Some animals were considered animals of the soul, and it was forbidden to kill them. Belief in the afterlife obviously affected burial practices. It was important to provide a loved one with items they needed in the afterlife. Tools, ornaments, and weapons, and even food were put into graves for the dead. Food and drink were sometimes taken to the grave even after the burial on occasion to honor the dead with a meal. The Setu people of southeastern Estonia followed this practice up to the modern time. Once a year, relatives gather at the graves of a loved one and share a meal. Everyone eats and pieces of meat are left at the side of the grave and a drop of alcohol is poured onto the cross. The Times of Souls was and maybe is an annual event. The loved ones would come back around harvest time to visit and have a meal. This period started on September 29th on Miklipav or Michael's Day through November 10th on Mardipav or Martin's Day and November 25th on Kadripav or Catherine's Day. At this time, the souls of the dead roamed and would come home to visit, where a table would be set with the best food such as meats, bread, dumplings, and porridge. In some places, the food was set up in the sauna, which was heated up and ready for use. There would be soap, water, and a birch whisk were ready for use. The birch whisk are in common use today in an Estonian sauna. The whisks are dried. Then while using the sauna, the whisks are dipped in water and patted on the extremities, usually the back, giving a massage of sorts. The time of souls was a quiet time, though, as the noise displeased them. Attitude towards nature in ancient times. Estonians back then believed they were part of nature, and all around were other souls. The souls of the animals, plants, trees, bodies of water, the sun, and the moon, and the sky. This way to look at nature is called animism. Every group of people that we know of had descendants that believed in animism. Since natural objects have a soul, they could be hurt or offended, and natural objects were apparently thought to have a free will. Therefore, if a person polluted the water, the water may drown them. If a person disrespected nature, that person might catch a disease. With regards to nature, it was best to treat it well or face the possible consequences. Spirits, fairies, and gods. According to an Estonian folklore, there are forest brothers and mothers and meadow fathers and mothers 
along with uh, with with field fathers and mothers um, in northern Estonia, they were called fairies, probably borrowed from Germanic origin. The Seto people kept a fairy uh, a fairy named Peko in their granaries. Peko was only taken out on festive on festive occasions connected with field work, in cattle breeding specifically. Estonians had a had a few greater deities when compared to neighboring people. The only major deity known and named by Henry of Livonia was Terapita. Ancient Estonians would use his name when they needed help or as a war cry. Tara Avita or Tara help. From, from Estonian folklore, Tara was born in Viruma and later flew to Sarema when he became a god. Many believe that Tara was borrowed from the Scandinavian god of thunder, Thor. However, it has been made known that some Eastern Finno-Ugric peoples, the Kants and the Mansi, have, the, have a god with a similar sounding name, suggesting Tara may have come from a much more uh, ancient past. Henry of Livonia retells an interaction between Christian priests that cut down large statue faces erected on a hill near Viruma. The Estonians were surprised that no blood flowed from the statues. These faces were thought to be of loved ones that had died, and the incident shows how ancient Estonians believed statues could replace the person it depicts. Places and Sacrifice Spirits of gods were thought to be a lot like us. They weren't ill-disposed towards people, but it was important to be good, on good terms with them, with the deities. Sacrifices and offerings were thought to please them. There were specific cult sites that these offers were made at. An example is a sacred grove or a sacred tree, spring or stone, and less often bodies of water. The oak and linden trees specifically were considered sacred. These trees often decorated with ribbon or cloth, and the tree could not ha have anything taken from, from it for use. One couldn't pick berries or gather branches from the sacred tree, and cattle were not allowed to go near the sacred tree as cattle can be messy. Sacrificial stones often had dimples, either man-made or natural. The dimples were between 0.2 and 1 meters in length. A sacrifice was typically made on a festive day, and Thursday was the day that was considered the best day to make the offering. Milk, meat, blood, wool, grain, and on important occasions, animals, or even sometimes people, normally those captured in battle. Prophecy, sorcery, and magic. Knowing the outcome of an endeavor would be potentially very beneficial, and ancient Estonians believed that the gods had the ability to reveal the outcome of coming events. According to Henry of Livonia, the will of the gods would be revealed with animal sacrifice. If the animal fell on their right, it would predict success for the endeavor. If the animal fell on the left, 
it was a bad omen and showed divine opposition. Sometimes the choosing of the sacrifice would be up to the gods. For example, in Tartu, during the ancient fight for freedom, the locals were indecisive on whether they should sacrifice a fat German priest or a stout ox on which the priest rode. It was settled by making the German ride the ox over a spear on the ground, and the outcome was determined by which leg crossed the spear first, the left or right. On this occasion, the priest was lucky and the ox was sacrificed. Magic was also used to manipulate nature. If there was a drought, the pagans would clean out the weather springs to unclog it. With the thought that water would be would flow better and the rain would come. Opposite of that, if there was a flood or too much rain, plugging the weather weather springs was thought to bring the, the desired results. There was also thought to be healing springs for specific ailments. Certain springs were meant to help with vision problems. Others cured skin trouble, hearing problems, and many others. Offers were given to the spring for its water, typically silver coins or ornaments, and for the poorer people, they could use silver scraps. An interesting fact is silver is known as a sanitizer, so throwing silver coins into the spring certainly didn't dirty the water. Influences of Christianity In in late ancient times, Estonia had many neighbors that practiced Christianity. The Swedes, Danes, and Slavs brought the knowledge of some Christian practices and knowledge to Estonia. These interactions certainly had an impact on traditions. 